that the next event that's predicted is the rapture. That is when the saints are removed here from planet Earth before the tribulation begins. And then tribulation will begin sometime after that with the signing of a covenant, Daniel chapter 9. There's going to be a treaty that is signed for a period of seven years. Well, what that involves, we don't know. Just that there's Antichrist signing it as a treaty with Israel. And then shortly thereafter, there's going to be uh, the beginning of several different judgments, sets of judgments. The first one is the seal judgments. And then at the midpoint, Satan is defeated, cast out of heaven for good. He comes to earth, woe unto the inhabitants of the earth because he knows <coughs> his time is short and he comes with great wrath. This then at the middle of the tribulation is when Antichrist rises to his world power situation. He institutes the 666. He's in control and uh, basically the last three and a half years is his world power. There is two more sets of judgments, the trumpet judgments and the vile judgments. And sometimes the vial is called the bowl judgments. And so those will take place, those 14 different judgments, and some of them involve some of these next events, such as the destruction of Babylon, which will be Antichrist's capital, the gathering at the Battle of Armageddon, and then at the battle, at the height of the Battle of Armageddon, Jesus Christ will come return to planet earth and uh, he will then stop all this chaos, all this that is going on and it says in scriptures except that he were to return, those days would be shortened, the entire world would be wiped out and so he comes to rescue his planet. Where we're at is what happens after that. <clears throat> the Bible gives us some details. Revelation 20 gives us some idea. It talks in Revelation 20 that when Jesus Christ returns we pick up that some of that battle was taking place in verses of chapter 19, verses 17, 18, 19, 20. And he's calling the birds, the beasts to come and feed their full of those who are opposing Christ. And he spoke but a word and destroyed them. Then we read in chapter 20 as the continuation of the saga. I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for, what's your Bible read? Okay, it should be a thousand years, okay? <clears throat> and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he would be loosed a season. Now keep that in mind, There's, he's chained for just a period. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon him, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that had been beheaded for Christ and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast nor received his mark upon their foreheads and in their hands, they lived and reigned with Christ for 1,000 years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the 1,000 years were finished. This is the first resurrection, that is, those who went into, who are resurrected and uh, put into the kingdom <clears throat> with the resurrection bodies they're the first resurrection, but he has already made clear there's a whole slew of people that still do not get resurrected until after the thousand years. We'll define who they are. Blessed is ho and holy is he that is in the first resurrection, on such the second death hath no power, but they shall be the priest of the king of God and of the Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Okay, so we have this idea of that kingdom that's a thousand years, and there's some details given here, and then there's a lot of details given in the Old Testament. Especially in the Old Testament, there's a lot of information given as far as what it's going to be like, because there was promises given. Now, we stopped last week just at this point, so those of you with us uh, last week, just bear with me for a second. Now, when we think about the kingdom of God, there are several different ideas that people float with. Some will think it's only a spiritual kingdom that's in the hearts only. Some will think it's like heaven 
a spiritual kingdom where people go to live. That's the kingdom of God whenever he talks about the kingdom. Some will say, yes, there is a kingdom of God, but it's a kingdom of God that we will bring about if and when we get everybody in the world converted. This was the theology during the Crusades. That idea of let's make people Christian and then we'll usher into the kingdom, which was an errant teaching. It's a physical kingdom in which Jesus Christ will rule once the world has prepared its, itself for him. This is modern, um, modern theology. The modern liberal theology says that there, we will usher in the kingdom when we have educated everybody, when we have rid the world of crime, when we have gotten rid of famines and hungers, and when we make the world a better place and everybody is drinking a Coke, then, you know, the, be a happy place and then Jesus Christ will set up his kingdom. That's an errant theology but that's the popular theology of modern uh, 1900s into the 2000s. It's a physical kingdom in which he will rule universally but it's brought about by him. We don't bring it about, Jesus Christ does. This is the most literal, simple interpretation. This is where we hold as believers of the Word of God that Jesus Christ will have a physical kingdom here on earth and it is coming, it's going to take place. He will actually touch down just like he left the Mount of Olives. He will come to the Mount of Olives. As the angel said, as you see him go, he will come again and that he will establish a kingdom and we believe without any reason to think otherwise that it's going to last a thousand years since six times in scriptures it talks about a thousand year kingdom and uh, so we believe it's a physical kingdom. With that in mind we'll go back and say okay what, what is this concept? <clears throat> Where did it come from? Is it only in the book of Revelation? No. If you go all the way back in the Old Testament God made multiple different covenants with a group of people. <clears throat> They're divided in, in different sections of scripture where he made the first promise of a kingdom concept to Abraham. And he told Abraham that his seed would multiply as the stars, that he would have the land everywhere he can see. And God told him that promise. That was expanded upon <clears throat> with what we call the Palestinian covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the uh, Davidic covenant. These were repeated. And all of them together formulated what is very important when you start talking about what, what, cons, what brings about, what is a kingdom. In order to have one, you have to have people. You have to have a place or property. You have to have laws or principles to operate by. You have to have leadership and it has to be able to be sustainable some type of prosperity going on that that kingdom can last. If you put all these covenants together and say, okay, this is what God was giving to a certain group of people, in fact, who were they? This is Israel. These were all given. Abraham as the father, uh, the Palestinian when Moses was giving the law. And the concept was that this could be initiated. David's seed would be on the throne forever. You remember that. And Jeremiah expanded. And then Jeremiah talked about when this new covenant comes, uh, there will be given a new heart and something would be put in people. Which, which was a new aspect of the covenant promise that Jeremiah said that, that everybody who's a part of it will receive this. Remember what it was? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would be indwelling them. And so um, they made all these kingdom, these kingdom uh, possibilities and promises. And if you put them all together, you have a kingdom concept of something that is a real physical kingdom. There's property. There's going to be people. There's going to be the laws. There's going to be the rulers. There's going to be prosperity. Now, they're not the only ones that mention this. In the New Testament, Jesus mentioned some of that idea of a new covenant. In fact, there was one character in the New Testament that said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Okay, do you remember when that was made, that statement? 
Okay, the Last Supper. That Jesus is saying, this is what's paying for the kingdom. It's going to be my sacrifice. I'm the one that's making the down payment for the land, for the people, for the princes, for everything else. And he made it very clear. And uh, so when he made, uh, made that statement, that adds to several others that he made. Now, in his ministry, Jesus talked about the kingdom frequently. Keep with me for just a minute with this. This can get a, a little bit complicated, but I'm sure you'll be able to understand it if I can explain it's half decent. There's other Old Testament references about the kingdom. You know some of these passages. You read the passages. They're part of the Christmas story. They all have the concept of a kingdom. And there are only a few. There are so many others, but these are a few of the more popular ones that talk about there is going to be a physical kingdom. The Son of Man will come. And by the way, the term Son of Man is most frequently used in light of those promises of the kingdom, especially in the book of Daniel. And so um, he's this, this concept of Messiah, an appointed one, or a Christ, the, the anointed one, who would lead the kingdom, is very, very popular throughout the Old Testament. They were looking for a kingdom. They were looking for a kingdom. They were looking for a physical kingdom. There isn't in the Old Testament the concept of the Jews looking to be in heaven like we are. They were looking for the physical kingdom because that's what their concept was. And that was what the promises. And so when Jesus comes and starts speaking, he starts talking about the kingdom. In fact, he made several statements. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sermon of the Mount is the kingdom of God is like this, that he spoke. And he uh, gave the kingdom parables. The kingdom of heaven will be like this. The kingdom of God will be like this. And he made those multiple different statements about how it'll be like a tree and it'll expand and it'll grow or the seed is spread. And so he made those statements. And then right around that time of Matthew 13, he's rejected. And the, the, the point of rejection by the Jews is a very, very important statement. They say, give us a sign. He gives them multiple, has given them multiple signs. And then they accuse him of doing the signs through who? That's the moment. This is the moment where they say, you are doing the signs through Beelzebub. And he makes the comment, he says, how can a kingdom stand if a kingdom is... Okay, that's the text. And then in that same text is when he makes the comment that all men's sins can be forgiven except for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And there's a major shift in his preaching and his teaching at that point. There's been a lot of the kingdom, you know, the kingdom is here, the kingdom is here, I'm offering you the kingdom. But after that point, <clears throat> then he shifts in a lot of his comments about the kingdom. The kingdom is now talked about in a future tense. If you go through and look at the passage, you'll see what I mean if you have a chronological Bible, that all of a sudden then he's talking about in the future there will be a kingdom. And so they've rejected his offer, and now he is talking about, I'm still going to bring you a kingdom, but it's not going to be in your lifetime. It's going to be basically, you know, and then he talks about when his kingdom comes, and then afterwards you have all these comments about, um, you know, can my son sit with you? And he accepts the concept that they're going to be in the kingdom one day, just the idea of who wants to sit where. He talks the concept about uh, going away, coming again, judging people, all those different parables, and even that idea that I will not drink again until in the kingdom with you, and that's the Last Supper. And then he talks again, uh, he, he spoke of those things pertaining to the kingdom during the 40 days after his resurrection before his ascension. And so Jesus was talking a lot about a kingdom, and again, when he's speaking that, the bulk of his conversation was within a Jewish context, talking about kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. But then as he expands it, that we disciples who are born again, the Gentiles, will be a part of that kingdom one day. And so in his comments, Jesus does talk about an aspect of the kingdom is already present and it's within you. Remember part of the kingdom 
is the promise that the Holy Spirit will come. Okay, that's an aspect of kingdom that we are already starting to experience. The concept of kingdom living, Sermon on the Mount. We should be that type of a citizen and that type of a character. Though we're not living in the physical kingdom, we should be portraying that we have citizenship in that future kingdom. And so in that sense, is there a part of the kingdom here in a spiritual sense? Yeah, the king is ruling and reigning in our heart. But that doesn't obliterate or take away the idea there is going to be a future, physical, literal kingdom. And that's when everything will be fully experienced to all the promises that are made. Now in Daniel chapter 12, I mentioned that we want to jump there. Um, before the kingdom starts, Daniel 12 gives us some information that, that sometimes we kind of overlook and we bypass. In Daniel chapter 12, look at the last couple of verses. This is the, the book that gives us the most idea, okay, about the tribulation, and then after the tribulation, there's going to be a resurrection of the saints, and they're going to be able to go into the kingdom. And he makes a comment, jump down to verse 11, and from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, and the abomination that's, that makes desolate be set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Okay, when is the sacrifice taken away and the abomination of desolation set up? Midpoint of the tribulation, okay. There's the midpoint of the tribulation, okay. Uh, sacrifices are done. Antichrist is the abomination desolation. He take, we talked about this. He takes over the temple, claims he's God. How many days in the second half of the tribulation according to the book of Revelation? 1260. 1260. Okay, and then there's, there's the first half of 1260 and the second half of 1260, which is three and a half years. But this passage says what? 1290. Okay, so it's adding in this prophecy, they're adding another 30 days. And then he goes on and makes another comment. Blessed is he that waits and comes unto the 1335 days. <clears throat> so he takes us to 1290, and then he takes us to the 1335. If you do the math of what you have in this text is you have basically this concept that from the middle of the tribulation to the end of the tribulation, 1260 days, but from the middle of the tribulation and to the beginning of the kingdom, 1335 days. So in other words, there's 75 days that are put into this text that we're not told what happens in this text. But he's indicating that they're from the middle of the tribulation to the beginning of the kingdom. There's, there's not just at the return of Christ, the 1260, but there is also another 75 days. 30 plus, then he adds some of the others. What happens during those 75 days? We don't know any particular passage that says, boom, this is going to happen in those 75 days. There's nothing that clearly says this is going on during the 75 days. However, we do know this, that after the, the return of Jesus Christ and before the kingdom starts, there are multiple things that will happen that take place before the kingdom starts, from the end of the tribulation to the beginning of the kingdom. So putting it together, these things must be happening in those 75 days. Though there's no particular text that says this will happen in, in those 75 days. But putting it together, here's our conclusions. Several different events or activities must take place after the second coming and before the inauguration of the kingdom. They include these types of things. Okay, let me list some. According to Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, which we started off reading this morning, what happens to Satan? Okay, Satan is bound and he's cast into the 
bottomless pit, he's chained for a thousand years. That must be one of these events that takes place. Between the second coming and the beginning of the tribulation, Satan's binding. Satan's removal and put in the pit. Matthew 25. Now if you turn to Matthew 25, he's giving us some information of what happens after the return of Jesus Christ. Turn there and watch the text, how it unfolds. This is, this is an interesting passage if you keep it and study it within its context. Sometimes we don't, but um, we ought to. It says in Matthew 25, <clears throat> go down to verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered who? I mean, Matthew 25, verse 32. All the nations. And he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. He shall set the sheep on the right hand, but the goats will go on the left hand. And if you read through the rest of the passage, the ones on the right hand are allowed to go into the kingdom. The ones on the left hand, he talks about, are going to be put into uh, an everlasting fire, down in verse 41. And so he, it says, Then the king shall say unto them on the right hand, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For when I was hungry, you gave me meat. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was a stranger, you took me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Then shall the righteous say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and took you in? When did we see you sick or in prison? prison. He says, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of my yeah, brethren, people, you have done it unto me. Then he says, depart to the others. If we understand this context and take it within its context, this is when the tribulation is over and Jesus is going to judge the survivors of the tribulation, the nations of the world the peoples who are alive at the time that he comes back. Now, he obliterates Antichrist, he takes out Antichrist's army, but what about the peoples that are still alive and spread out through planet Earth at that point? This is going to be their judgment, the sheep-goat judgment. And at that moment, he's going to say, some of you who are born again and you've evidenced your born-againness by doing what? Who did they help during the tribulation period? The Jewish people. Yeah. In this context, this is a judgment that's going to show how do you show your faith during the tribulation. The Gentiles will show it how they responded to the Jewish nation. Who remember in the tribulation period, they're under great persecution. Antichrist is trying to do an international holocaust, trying to annihilate the people. And Jesus will say, okay, some of you got born again during that time period. Remember the 144,000, the angels, the two prophets, all those witnesses. And when they show their faith, their faith would be demonstrated, not by going to the temple in the second half of the tribulation, because the temple is occupied by Antichrist, okay? They're going to be showing their faith by how did they respond to the Jewish people, the brethren of Jesus Christ. And so the sheep goat judgment has to take place someplace, and this is after his return and before they go into the kingdom. These are people who will enter the kingdom with him. So that has to be one of the events. Then Malachi 3, you can look this one up later. Malachi 3 verses 1 through 5 talks about a judgment of the living Jewish people who had been rebellious and who had not responded to the call to come back into Jerusalem. So there's going to be some of the judgment of Jewish survivors 
who rejected Antichrist, uh, rejected Jesus Christ and did not come back for the gathering that's going to take place during that period. According to what we've read in Daniel uh, in Revelation and look in Daniel chapter 12 with me. We'll jump back there for a second. In the beginning of the book of Daniel, now I lost my passage place so I'll be with you trying to figure where it's at. Uh, Daniel chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 talks about that uh, something else that is happening in this time period. It says in verse 1, At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, this is the angel who protects the Jews, which stands for the children of thy people, and there shall be the time of trouble, tribulation, such as never was since there was a nation even to the same time. And at that time they shall be delivered, your people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall do what? They shall awake. What's he talking about? Those who died and then they are resurrected. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and contempt. Now compare that with Revelation 20. Revelation 20 talks about there's a first resurrection, there's a second resurrection. The first resurrection is those who have died and they were believers and they are going to receive their bodies and they will go into the kingdom and he says but there are many others who will not be resurrected until after. We read that in Revelation 20 and highlighted in verse 6 when we came to it. So another event that has to take place during this 75 days is there's going to be the resurrection of the Old Testament saints who have died. Their body resurrection, that would be the Joshua's, the Abraham's, the David's, their descendants, all the people we read about, the Elisha's and all those individuals, they will be resurrected at that time and they will be given glorified bodies. And apparently according to Revelation 20, this includes the tribulation saints who died and were martyred during that time period. They are Old Testament, part of that 490 years. So there's going to be a judgment of those who survived the tribulation. There's going to be the resurrection and glorification of all those who are Old Testament saints. Don't, don't assume, do not make the mistake by saying, well then that must mean we get our bodies now. No. When did we get our resurrection bodies? At the rapture seven years earlier. We're not Old Testament. <clears throat> that last seven years, that tribulation is an Old Testament uh, era, part of the 490 years. Church age stopped with the rapture. We get our bodies there at that point, our resurrection bodies. We're in heaven. But those Old Testament saints, at the end of the seven years, then those who through all those ages previous to the church age, they will get their resurrection bodies so they can enter the kingdom. And that includes the tribulation saints. Something else that has to happen. Do you remember in the parables that he talks about that, and he mentions this in a couple, that the master goes away, and then after a period of time, the master comes back. But before he left, he gave this person one talent. This person, you know, three, five. And the numbers change, okay, there's between some of the parables. But he gave them talents. He will come back afterwards, and when he comes back, what's he going to do with those people? He's going to judge them at what they did with those talents and then based on what they did with the talents, they will be given rewards or responsibilities in the kingdom. So when does that judgment take place? It must be at this time. There's no other time that we know of. 
Our judgment has taken place at the Bema seat. But what about the Old Testament saints? Well, they only get resurrected at this point, and so that must be their period of judgment before they go into the kingdom. As well, we would add that um, there's another event that, that takes place here that would fit in this time period, and that would be this one, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 talks about not people being resurrected, but something totally different. What's that? Not, not nations, but something else that is groaning and waiting for its resurrection. Creation itself. Okay, so creation at this point, remember creation has to be redone because how bad did people bring the planet Earth? Almost to the point of destruction. And there's been devastation. So the passage speaks about the groaning of creation waiting for its deliverance. Deliverance from the curse. Deliverance from all the different aspects of damnation and destruction. So in that last, in that 75-day period, there's got to be the renovation of planet Earth to get it ready for the kingdom. Because when we go into the kingdom, do we go into a devastated country that's going to take years and years and years to rebuild? That's not a concept of the kingdom. The kingdom concept is we enter in and there is immediate fruitfulness and prosperity. So there's got to be a period of time of renovation. Now, with that in mind, some of you are thinking the same thing I would think. How long would it take the Lord to renovate? Okay, how long did it take him to create? Yeah, right, just saying a word. But these events are there that they take place. I mean, how long would it take him to judge? We, we don't know how he's doing all this, but he's, from our point of view, he, there's a 75-day period, and there's a lot of these events that are post-trib, pre-kingdom. They must be what's happening during those 75 days. And so then at the end of that time period, we enter into the kingdom. The kingdom then is going to start. It's going to be inaugurated. What the inauguration point of kicking it off is, we don't know other than what we're told. The, 300, uh, the 1335th day after the tribulation, the middle of the trib. What's he going to do? Is he going to make an announcement? We don't know. We just know that he begins and there's a thousand years. We know that when we start into the kingdom that it's going to be a totally different planet Earth. Uh, it's going to be the same planet. Don't let me confuse you. This is not the new heaven. This is not the new earth. We are still dealing with planet earth, but it's been revived. It's been renovated. It's been repaired. All those different words. And once we start going into the kingdom, here's what we know mostly from the Old Testament, okay, which gives us a lot more of the details. We know there's a thousand years, and there's no reason to assume that it's not a thousand years, that it's just a figure of speech. Again, the, word, the thousand year phrase is used multiple times and taking it simply at face value, it's a thousand years. It is a time when Satan and evil are going to be basically suppressed, like never before. That we go in now, um, it says that Satan's in the bottomless pit. I'm making an assumption, <clears throat> and I'm not the only one, but I'm making an assumption that that must include that his hordes are also suppressed, that they aren't doing his evil bidding, that there's going to be that form of temptation, that they're going to be removed some way, somehow, that they're included in this bondage, this being taken away, where some are already in Tartarus, what all happens, I don't know. But we know that Satan, as the, as the uh, instigator leader, he's out of the area. This will be the first time in human, hi human history 
that Satan's devices and attacks are removed. That will make the kingdom fabulous in and of itself. That you won't have the same temptations. To me, I don't know about you, to me that's one of the great delights of heaven. Temptation will be gone. And we don't have to deal with it. And so we know that. We know that in uh, geopolitically, we know geographically, we know um, economically, this will be a far different world than what we experience at this point. It'll be different in so many different ways, politically, socially, physically, uh, climate-wise. And if we start just going through multiple passages and just say, okay, what are some of the descriptions of the kingdom? Here are some of the ideas of what happens in that physical kingdom. Politically, it's going to be way different. Jesus Christ will be the ruler, and he's going to rule with a rod of... Why does he say that? Why does he have to rule with a rod of iron when everybody is saved? Okay? Keep in mind, I'm going to come back to that. He's going to be the absolute ruler. He's going to rule from Jerusalem. So we're going to have that geopolitical change. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. Faithful saints from the Old Testament and New Testament, faithful saints will be uh, helping to reign with him. Revelation 20, when we just read it, that there's going to be many who will reign and rule with him. Uh, we're, talked, we're talked about in Peter's writing that we are priests and rulers with him. And so we will help him rule over the planet. And the question that has come to your mind is, who are we ruling over during those thousand, thousand years if all of us who are saints are rulers? So who are we over? Keep that in mind. Why does he have to rule with a rod of iron? Why do we have to, well, who are we ruling over each other and each other alone? Um, there, there's more to that. As part of the political atmosphere that takes place during this thousand-year kingdom, we know that the millennium will be one where there is universal peace. These are the passages that talk about that the UN has even on their, their buildings, that idea that you know, there will be peace and there will be plow, you know, the weapons are into plowshares so that they can do farming and no more weaponry. And so there's multiple passages that talk about violence is gone, warfare is gone, which you and I look at and we say this is, this is an absolute phenomenal situation that there is worldwide peace that it's ushered in and there are so many different texts that talk about this. So you can write down what, but let me remind you, okay, at the setting of, and, and to put it in place, when he is giving this promise, uh, I shouldn't say when, yeah, the time period for which this promise of universal peace, this is what the world will be like, universal peace. What has just gone on in the world just previous to this point? What has it been like? Wars, rumors of wars, destruction. And so this idea of peace is going so contrary to what people have experienced and seen happening in creation in the world. It's been the most devastating time in human history. The seven years of tribulation has been nothing but warfare and conflict. Now, and that's when one man said, I'll give you peace, and he rode the white horse as, you know, the provider of peace. But he deceived all mankind. Now when Jesus brings, brings peace, what is it? It's real. It's lasting. And it's not just for a day or two. It's going to be for that thousand-year peace, which mankind has never seen a thousand-year peace. And so this is, keep in mind the context. This is so different from what people who, remember, there's been people who have been in the sheep goat judgment. 
the sheep who, who got saved during the tribulation, all and the Jews who got saved during the tribulation, and they survived the tribulation, all they've known for the last few years is war and holocaust and danger and famine and persecution and all the evil things, and all of a sudden Jesus is ushering in a totally different kingdom for them. Phenomenal from their point of view. It's the time that there's going to be a one universal language. Now, you can claim whatever you want it to be, French, English, Spanish, whatever you want, okay? Some will claim to, that it's Hebrew. I, I don't know and nobody knows what the language is. But there's one universal language. If you think about it for a second, how would one language unify the human race? It's not a profound question. Yeah, I mean, when was the world united at one point? Okay, creation up until... Babel, and Babel purposely was designed to do what? Separate people because people were all in one mindset that they were going to reach unto the heavens instead of spreading out through the planet. And they stayed together. And what kept them together in one place, though God had said be fruitful and, yeah, and spread out, okay, instead of doing that, they stayed together. What kept them all together? The one language, okay. And so this is an obvious that that one language will enhance that. Then it talks about his perfect leadership. And it's not just Christ, but there's also the others that are going to be ruling with him, that things will be done properly and in order, that, um, you know, right now we say this, if you go to court sometimes, what speaks the loudest? It's being cynical. But what do we often say speaks the loudest in decisions? Money money. Yet there's, there was, our idea is that there's corruption at times even in, in what we think should be the most honest area of our politics that should be the judicial system that sometimes money talks. And so here he's saying no, no, it's going to be a time when it is going to be justice is going to be just. And everything is, and again I sit there and go, wait a minute, why does he talk about justice if everybody is born again, has glorified bodies, and aren't tempted anymore. So why does he talk about ruling with a rod of iron? Why does he talk about having to mete out justice? What is he, to, and if we have peace, who's having conflicts? Okay, we'll get there, okay. I'm, I'm trying to catch up to you, okay. Okay, the time of great prosperity, okay, that we have that, that whole period he talks about. And remember, this is given to people who have just, and to us, but people who are on earth have just experienced what for seven years? What has been one of the, one of the very beginning uh, um, judgments was that food would all of a sudden become very scarce, very scarce. There's been famine for seven years, which, and he's saying, okay, now you're going to have prosperity. And this prosperity means that the curse is probably, that we know of, is removed at this point, where he talks about, okay, there's going to be, you know, he talks to the Jewish people, giving the promises, that when you go out and you do, your, your pastures are going to be huge. You're not going to have to worry about later and early rains. It's just going to happen. You're going to have tremendous prosperity. No famine, no hunger, as we have already mentioned. That, that follows that time period. And so he's, and he's made these comments. Remember, he's talking, most of this is given during periods like Ezekiel. He's promising a future kingdom when, where are the people at the time that Ezekiel is, is ministering? The people are stuck in... Babylon outside of their land 
And what did they know was happening back home in Jerusalem? Devastation. Absolute devastation. And he's saying, one day, one day, one day you're going to go back and your homeland will be just fruitful and it'll be phenomenal. And they're like, yeah, that's not what we have going on right now. But he's making all these promises time and time again. There will even be atmospheric changes. Okay, here's a passage for you that talks about the light of the moon, the light of the sun. Now some of you might say, well, wait a minute. It says that there is not going to be any moon and there's not going to be any sun because it'll be the Son of God. You're not thinking kingdom. You're thinking the new heaven, the new earth. That's a different element. This is kingdom is for this thousand years still on this planet. And he talks about how this light is going to be expanded and some commentators right away say, well, wait a minute. If that's the case, it's going to be harmful to mankind and creation. And yet there's another text that gives us an indication that he's preparing creation in that sense and even setting up the world in creation to provide protection from what could be called harmful situations or no longer harmful because of the curse being removed. And so he makes all these comments that gives us this information about this kingdom and what's happening during that time period. Great harmony and creation. Some of the passages, and there's multiple passages that talk about this, the animals and the people and the kids and the children, getting together and there's not going to be any problem and there's not going to be the attacks and the hurts. What's interesting, I hadn't seen this one but I, when I was studying it, Isaiah 35 talks about going to the way of Jerusalem and on your way to Jerusalem to worship, no lion shall be there nor any ravenous beast that will come but the redeemed will walk safely to Jerusalem without threat of animals. Now remember during the tribulation Death came to a great portion of the human race. One of the, one of the sealed judgments included animals attacking people. Okay, and at the time that they're giving some of this prophecy back in Isaiah's day, was it safe or were there dangerous animals when you were traveling through Palestine? They're dangerous animals. I mean, take the story of Samson. One of the episodes of Samson, what does he run across and kill with his bare hands? Yeah, those animals were there. And they were part of the, you know, some of that um, discipline of God. When the Jews didn't do right, the animals could overrun the land and uh, start attacking people. Now he's saying that's not going to be the case. Those wild animals, those threatening animals, it's going to be no threat to the people at, at all. Then he talks about good health. The inhabitants shall not say, I am sick. Well, again, I'm going to pause. Okay, I'm going to catch up to you, Pooch, on this one. Okay, the, the, We have glorified bodies. We can't get sick. Can we? The Old Testament saints have glorified bodies. They can't get sick. So when people say, I'm not sick, it's like, well, so what? Unless, could there be some people who could get sick during this time period? And that brings in, all these questions are that, that you've been posing. Does everybody who enters the kingdom, does everybody enter saved and with a glorified body, a perfect body? If that's the case, then what do we do with passages that talk about he's ruling and reigning with a rod of iron? What do we do with passages that talk about little children? If we all have glorified bodies... Are we going to have the same age? Well, let me throw this. When the rapture takes place, are you going to be the same age? Is your body going to be the same age as it is right now for all eternity? Okay, it could be. It could be. But a lot of you are thinking the same thing I'm thinking. I don't want this same body age 
when I go into the, the rapture. Most of us conclude that when the rapture takes place, we will be given perfect bodies that don't show age. Okay? Well, what about little babies? Does that mean that that baby is going to be a baby throughout all eternity with a glorified body and a baby? And yet in the kingdom, it talks about the little children playing by the hole of the, the asp. So does everybody go in and that they're the age and they keep perpetually the age you are right now or whenever you pass away and get your, you know, and then your glorified body? Or is something else happened here? Okay. I, I'm convinced the one I'm going to share in the next few minutes, I'm convinced this is, this is pure biblical, biblical doctrine in the sense that everybody goes into the kingdom saved. But not everybody ends up after a thousand years saved. Did they lose their salvation? They can't. But we, all, but we read in Revelation 20, we read these comments that at the end of the thousand years, this is, let's start here, let's start at the end of the thousand years, okay? And then let's build our, our theology from here. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 7, when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to do what? Deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, as the number of whom is as the... What is he... What's, are, is this us? Do some of you or me lose our loyalty to Christ during the thousand years and turn against him? Who is Satan deceiving? And they went up on the breath of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about the beloved city, and fire comes down and destroy them. Who are these people who rebel? If everybody goes into the kingdom saved, then who are these people who rebel at the end? Are they people that, that gave up their salvation, gave back their glorified body? I don't think so. Okay? I know that the, we've got to, everybody has to enter in born again. They have to be saved when they're entering. That's the sheep goat judgment. You know, did you, are you a sheep or are you a goat? Those who survived the tribulation, they don't go in unsaved. The Jews who have not responded to the Messiah, Malachi said, they would be judged during that 75-day gap. And so putting it all together, the church age saints, we received our glorified bodies seven years earlier before the kingdom, seven years and 75 days, plus whatever time period before the tribulation. We were taken away. We, were, we escaped that whole time period. We've given you all that. We also know that the Old Testament saints who passed away, the trib saints who died during the tribulation, they've, got, they've been given glorified bodies before they enter into the tribulation. So we got glorified bodies. They got glorified bodies. And part of our glorified body is what is taken away from us that we don't have to deal with anymore, that we're born with now. Sin nature. Okay, so we enter into the kingdom without a sin nature. The Old Testament saints, trib saints, who, were, who died and got glorified by us, they enter in without a sin nature. So he doesn't need to rule over us with a rod of iron. He doesn't need to mete out justice to us because we should be doing what's right because we don't have that same idea. But... We've talked about saints who have survived that have lived through 
uh, the tribulation and they are gathered all the nations Matthew 25 all the nations are gathered and he judges them those who have survived the tribulation who are alive at the end of the tribulation and he judges them as the sheep goat judgment based upon how they showed their their belief in Christ by responding to the Jews there's no mention of them getting glorified bodies they just go into the kingdom plus there is also one-third of the Jews, according to Zechariah 14, who when they see Messiah come back on the horse, they believe in him. The, the earthquake takes place. They run from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives through that valley, and they call upon him. There's no mention of them who have survived getting a glorified body. And yet there's mention of a whole bunch of kids being born in the tribulation. But... Um, are we going to have babies in the, in, the, in the kingdom? In heaven, do we have babies? Okay, let, let's do the Mormon doctrine. Ladies, you're going to be barefoot and pregnant for all eternity. Does that sound like bliss? Okay. There, but Jesus said in Matthew 22 that after the resin, resurrection we shall be like the angels who do not marry nor give in marriage. The idea is we don't procreate with glorified bodies. We aren't given to procreation. But the passages, multiple passages, talk about a lot of people being birthed during this time period. Well, let's start at the end. It talks about a lot of people rebelling at the very end, but if everybody goes in saved, then who are these people? Okay, it can't be people who lose salvation. That is totally contrary to the scriptures. It can't be people that God all of a sudden rejects. Okay. And those with the with bodies. There must be new people being born during the thousand-year kingdom. New people helping to repopulate planet Earth. That fits passages like Isaiah 65. There shall no more be an infant of days, nor an old man, a child. It's the word that he used in the Hebrew is a baby. A baby is somebody who's 100 years old is called a baby. Okay? And he talks in this text about the idea that there's going to be in the kingdom babies in that kingdom. Okay, where did they come from? Okay, my conclusion is they're birthed during that time period. And that also explains a whole lot of other passages in the scriptures that talk about population growth during the kingdom. You have texts like this, and when you shall have multiplied and increased in the land, at that time Jerusalem will be called the throne of the Lord. These are kingdom passages that talk about Jewish population explosion. There are passages that talk about in the kingdom that they shall uh, bear children, not in the intensity of the pain of the childbearing. That will be removed. Not where your, your children are going to suffer. But they're talking about offspring being born in the kingdom period. Their children also shall be as aforetime, the congregation shall be established. The idea is that you're, the, somebody's having children like they did in the past. We have the concept that I'll gather the remnant of my flock. They shall be fruitful and multiply. So he's telling the Jewish people that there's going to come a time period when they go into the kingdom that the Jewish nation will increase in population like never before in history. We read again in Isaiah that they talks about the people having children among those who are part of the kingdom. Yeah, according to Ezekiel, excuse me. And he's talking about, I'll whistle for them, gather them, I've redeemed them as many as they were before. He's going to increase the Jewish... Remember during the tribulation, they've gone down to a very small number. 
and all of a sudden he's repopulating the world with Jewish people. This helps explain Zechariah 5. Zechariah 5 is a passage that's talking about the kingdom and it's one of the visions that takes place during that kingdom passage. I, some of you may remember, this is a vision of a scroll. A scroll that is 30 feet by 15 feet. It is unfurled. There is writing on both sides, just like the tablets uh, that Moses had. There was writing on both sides. And this scroll is hovering over the planet. And wherever there is a theft or there is a broken vow, this scroll flies there and it meets out justice right away. It's a scroll of judgment that is occurring during the, the kingdom age. Well, why is there a need for this? Unless people are being birthed during this time and those who are being birthed still have a sin nature, those individuals who need to obey or else there's punishment, and at the end of the, of the thousand years, from amongst those many who are birthed during that time period, many will rebel against Jesus Christ because they will have listened to him, but they will not have accepted him as their personal savior. And so there's multiple passages that talk about judgment taking place. Okay, do you realize that in the, in the Old Testament there is even passages that mention the idea that just, justice will be taking place and there could be death in the kingdom for people who disobey? Who's dying? It's the individuals who are born during that time period. The, the multiple numbers of people who are born that have to respond to Christ by asking him as their savior and they have a choice. But they do not have a choice of whether or not he is the ruler over their activities, over their life. Everybody has to do what Jesus said. He is a ruler ruling with a rod of iron. And so they have to obey him. In fact, this talks about everyone would die for their own sins during this time period. A new time period in history. That it wouldn't be uh, the sins of the father being visited upon the child, such as in the Old Testament. If one of the generations did wrong, all of a sudden it would be visited upon. Gehazi, he lied. And his sons get the leprosy. In the kingdom, if somebody does wrong, that person is going to be taken and judged for what they do. And the Lord is going to be a righteous judge dealing with those who are birthed during that time period based upon their compliance, their obedience, their following what he did. And so it's not us who are going to rebel. It's not the Old Testament saints who are glorified they are going to rebel. But it's the children of those who enter in with regular bodies who have survived the tribulation, Gentile and Jewish, who will give birth to children and those children have to respond to the gospel. Or at the very end, they have to make a choice. Do we continue to live under the rule of Jesus Christ? Or this is the first time that Satan is telling us we can do what we want and do our own thing. Sounds like the Garden of Eden. And he will get, as it says, as the sands of the seas or the stars of the sky, many will follow him. Let's pick up there next week and talk a little bit more about what happens. Thanks for listening.